0: Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today I interviewed Boris Wirtz. This was a really interesting interview. Uh, I don't know if you remember from last Thursday, I published my episode with Ian Livingston of Dropout Labs. Uh, And Boris was actually the one who, uh, well, they've invested in in Ian's company, and they're the ones who um, gave me the inkling to go talk to Ian. So Really happy to publish this one and give you a little bit more insight into that, how that came about, how our conversation with Ian, Ian went about. Yeah, well, we're kind of mapping the startup ecosystem of the Midwest and uh, uh, and I think this is a really good interview and I think you'll enjoy it a lot. And just so you know, I'm going to be continuing these interviews uh, and I'm gonna start doing them in Spanish as well. Uh, so if you're interested in, if you speak Spanish uh, or Portuguese, so for the Spanish one, at Get Crazy Wisdom ESP on Twitter. Uh, you can find out. You can follow me there, and I'll be publishing my episodes in Spanish about the ecosystem. And we also created a new account for Crazy Wisdom, uh, the podcast, where I'll be publishing all of my episodes from there on, from now on over there at Get Crazy Wisdom. So, if you're interested in either of those, at Crazy Wisdom ESP if you speak Spanish, and at Get Crazy Wisdom uh, if you want to get all of these episodes when they're published as I'm starting to release every weekday. I'm I'm hoping to get in a weekly schedule. It, it does take me some time to do of these, but um, and I've got a lot of other things going on, so I am trying to get them every day uh, every weekday. So please look out for them. And have a great day. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest here today is Boris Wurtz. He is a former entrepreneur, a current investor a fa- and a founding partner at a $45 million uh, investment fund uh, in companies that leverage network effects, for example, uh, SaaS, um, uh, crypto, uh, and they're all across North America. Can you can you give the name of your of your um, firm again?
1: Uh, version One Ventures.
0: Version One Ventures, cool. And uh, today we're going to have a conversation about uh, distributed teams, remote work, the rise of technology in different metro areas around the globe, probably particularly focused on North America because Boris has a, a specialty in that. So welcome to the show, Boris. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, what are you most excited about in terms of the rise of technology production outside of Silicon Valley?
1: I think the general theme has been that uh, up to probably even ten years ago, that you know the wisdom was you can only build large standalone companies based in the valley, and and all the talent has been has been going here, there to to do that. I think today there is. Um, great examples how you can build amazing companies outside of that ecosystem Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that there's no opportunity in the valley Uh, you know to the contrary I think it's more thriving than ever before but um, building a a large company doesn't mean necessarily to move to the valley and and, uh, you know Shopify for example is is an amazing example Um, today you know kind of a uh, Company that has 45 billion in market cap uh, got started in Ottawa, which is a small city in Canada. Uh, today, it has only offices, mostly only offices in, in in Canada, and is one of the largest SaaS um, companies in the world by, by market cap. So um, that that trend, I think, is just going to to accelerate. Um, and uh, you know, as you always say, town is everywhere, um, and now the opportunity is is there as well. Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, the most interesting thing for me, and let's see if I can put this into words, is that there is a, it's no no longer like Silicon Valley versus the rest of the world, because now we seem to have networked, like we're having this conversation uh, on, you know, through Zencaster, where we're transmitting voice, you're sitting in Vancouver, I'm sitting in, in Silicon Valley in San Francisco right now. But we're, we're sharing the type of knowledge that could only be found in San Francisco, But now that capability is spread throughout the world through this connecting medium, the Internet, in a way that it wasn't 20 to 30 years ago. So I see that that as the main uh, barrier that's no longer there anymore um, in terms of preventing this rise of of uh, innovation outside of Silicon Valley.
1: Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely correct. And uh, completely, completely agree with that trend and that take on it.
0: Mm -hmm. And. What are the companies that you are investing in that take advantage of these network effects? Does is that a key component of taking advantage of the network effects that they are distributed?
1: You know, I so so, I not not necessarily. Um, so you know, we're we're part of the. Um, Part of the thesis, for example, we have in, in network effects is, you know, we, we, we have always loved to invest in marketplaces or companies that uh, leverage uh, data that is, uh, that is uh, distributed and, and creates network effects. Um, so I, I think like, one thing is um, distributed teams that can, that can you know, kind of just work more efficiently than anything else. Um, the other one is like actually network effects in the business. So we're we're focused on the latter, but we, we're we're more than happy um, to invest in distributed teams in the, in the first place. And those distributed teams come in two ways. It's the the, the companies that have a Silicon Valley headquarters and then add team members um, in in remote locations or whole teams. Right. So they basically often for for cost reasons don't want to build a whole team in uh, in the valley the other way around is people you know, kind of companies that are headquarters in remote locations where they would have never the ability to actually uh, attract uh, all the top talent uh, just because it's locally not available and they add specialists and great leaders and amazingly talented people in a remote capacity to their team so the, a VP of engineering or a, a VP of design uh, well, growth marketer. Um, so it really goes in both ways, both uh, the, the ones that are in the valley and for cost reasons at you know, remote team members or our whole teams, and, and the other ones that want to have access to, to, to talent uh, at the same time.
0: Yeah, and there's this interesting thing about distributed teams. I talk to a lot of founders these days, and a lot of founders start talking about how uh, I ask them, are you distributed? And their answer seems to be, uh, our development team is entirely distributed, but then we have a core office in, for example, Mexico city or San Francisco or anything like that. So development seems like a core thing that most people kind of just by default can be, um, can be distributed. And it seems like to go back to a really great essay by Paul Graham, it seems like it's because of this, uh, developer time versus, uh, manager time managers work in our, in, um, sections of hours they split up their days into hours and they go from meeting to meeting to meeting to talk to other people but developers have like three to four hours when they want to block off for getting really deep into a technical problem and they don't want to be distracted and so distributed work seems ideal for those types of jobs Uh, would you say that that's accurate or would do you have anything to add about that kind of nuance to the remote work about. Yeah,
1: I think that I think it's a, in in development probably for, for all sorts of reasons, the one that you mentioned, but also kind of because of access to talent or cost differences. Like I think we've seen it the most in terms of distributed teams. But having said that, these days you see distributed teams in many other areas. Um, you know, there are some cities where it's much uh, easier to to build a a kind of outbound sales team. You uh, know, like that that be you know Austin, Texas, or Santa Barbara. Right, uh, we've seen a bunch of people outsourcing or kind of having distributed customer service teams uh, in in you know, cheaper locations. Um, so, so I think it, it, it definitely development development era has the longest history of, of uh, supporting distributed teams. But we've now seen it in, in many other areas where it just makes sense to to go to other places than than mm-hmm. the valley.
0: And that's really interesting that you mentioned Santa Barbara as one of those places for an outbound sales team. and I imagine that has something to do with Sonos, correct?
1: Yeah, I think that that's one of them. but I think in general, like um, for example, for outbound sales teams, it's it's often if you have uh, access to tremendous amount of young graduates from universities mm-hmm. um, that want to stay in that town, that want to look for an entry level job, um, you know and you're often one of the few, Games in town there's not tons of other opportunity. I think it's a great way to recruit people. Um, and you know that, that has both happened in Austin and Santa Barbara and many other places across across the US.
0: That is very interesting. So let's go through all the different types of uh, kind of silos in a company that might be open to distribution. So we've got uh, we've got development. We've got outbound sales. What are some other really big ones that you see that are kind of are tied to a specific geography or that are easily distributed?
1: Yeah, I mean the the, the other one that I mentioned before, I think people are trying to um, you know, kind of hire customer service teams in yeah. complete locations and partly cost, partly you know better speed for uh, in, in terms of. Um, answer get, getting onto the, the customer service job in different time zones, so I think that's that's a natural one. But you know, sometimes we have a, a bunch of companies that have built um, kind of distribu- kind of a distributed company from the ground up, and so in every single team, um, they're trying to hire the best candidate, and that best candidate might come uh, uh, in in San Francisco or they might be somewhere else, but. They have uh, a design team that is partly, uh, has partly remote workers, distributed workers, right? They have the, the development team is partly distributed. Their sales team is partly distributed. Their marketing team is partly distributed. So they've, they've not looked at, like, what are the, you know, should, should I have one function in the headquarters or one function um, distributed remote? They're more thinking about, we build a distributed company from the beginning on, from the ground up. Uh, we have a headquarter, but ultimately we are open for every single position to be hired uh, in, in a remote location if that is the best candidate we can find for that position. And it becomes a real competitive advantage when you you build your whole company around your company culture, your company communication, your company management around being able to um, have distributed team members on every single team. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good point. And uh I talked to Ben Ling on a panel. He is an investor uh, um in GitLab uh and Distributed Teams uh and he actually said that distri- he, he's not that bullish on distributed work because of uh because they don't uh because it only works, he said it only works in some companies uh, where the product itself is highly amenable to distribution. So in GitLab, because they're such a development-focused team, um, they are particularly kind of keen for that. What do you think about that? Do you do you think that that's wrong? That there is there is a opportunity to distribute whatever type of company it is, or does the does it not matter for the product whether it is distributed or not?
1: So. So I think it's like three factors that determine if a distributed team can be successful or less successful, right? Um, the first one is I definitely think that if you don't build a kind of a dis- distributed team mindset into the culture, into the company organization, from the beginning on, it's very hard to actually have a distributed team, right? And, uh, uh, and you know some some of the, the, the things you just mentioned, they're actually – teams that you know kind of have, have been built in a distributed way from beginning on. I think the second factor is um, there is certainly some um, some companies project products that are a little easier to develop in a distributed way everything that kind of feels a little bit more like open source or development project like you know git uh, github uh, etc automatic etc. I, I agree with you. I think there's some that are a little bit better, better to um, to, to scale in a distributed way than, than than others. And then the third one is, I think it's also a little bit this, the the this stage of the company. I think if you are if you have product market fit, um, uh, it's much easier to then scale the company in a distributed way. Finding product market fit, where like ID generation, customer interviews. Feed, close feedback loops mm-hmm. is much tougher to to organize that in a distributive way, right? So I think all these things, your willingness to to actually build a distributed team, um, the the kind of product you 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 you're building, and then last but not least, the question if you have product market fit or not, all all of those questions kind of drive if you're going to be successful or not so successful in 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 a distributed way so it's i don't think it's an either or it's a little more kind of different factors influencing that
0: Mm -hmm. and let's talk about like investment have you ever made a investment in a company without meeting a person a founder in in person have you ever made any investments remotely
1: yeah we did we've done um, many of those i mean in general we like to spend some time with the founders but given that we, we invest across North America, and and sometimes you want to take a decision or you have to take a decision very quickly, the only thing you can do is is very, having video calls and and telephone calls and emails. But there's just no way you can meet in person, right? So I, I don't have the exact numbers, but I, I would probably say that twenty five percent of our our investments have been in in uh, founders that we never met in person before the investment. Certainly met many many times after the investment um and and build a relationship over the years but but not in the beginning
0: that's so interesting and i would love uh i'm not sure this would ever be possible in like 10 or 20 years but to look back in that on that data and then see uh if it actually mattered whether you met in person or not um and i'd be really curious to see that data but uh and, and, you know, I see this trend kind of expanding. There was a, there was an organization called, I think 1 million founders or something like that, that was around the globe and kind of doing pitch events a few years ago, but I haven't heard anything from them for a while now. And I wonder if there is a space where some sort of investment kind of fund that focuses on, uh, uh or even, or even, um, kind of a, a pitch organization or anything like that. Have you heard of that? Anybody doing like organizing pitch events via zoom?
1: Not in a way, I mean, like, there, there's a bunch of these things um, in, in a more kind of giving, giving back, mentoring way. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't really seen anybody um, officially building um, kind of something around, like, an investment product around it, or a venture capital product around it, right? Um, but, yeah, it's, I think it's an interesting way. Like, um, you, you basically um, le- leverage um, kind of, technology to, to, uh, get access to every single, single founder out there.
0: Hmm. And so these companies that you're investing across in North America, are they, um, do you guys have any requirements whatsoever about where they set up? Are they setting up in, you know, New Orleans and in, in, uh, Toronto and, um, Chicago? What, what, where are most of these companies located?
1: Um, so ultimately we're, I think we're open to investing in, in every single location in North America. Practically, most of our deals have been in four ecosystems: San Francisco, uh, the, the Bay on the one hand side, Seattle, uh, Toronto, Waterloo, and then New York. So, for them, for those four ecosystems, make up about eighty percent um, of, of of our deals. You know, I think in the end, it's a little bit um, a, a trade off. Um, I think the uh, the smaller the ecosystem. The usually the easier is in the beginning to kind of get to some traction with very little capital. Mm. Um, it's often you don't have a war for, for 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 talent. Um, rent is cheaper. Uh, salaries are cheaper. Um, I think you're you're able as one of the only games in town to attract amazing talent that you wouldn't have been been able to to attract. So I think I always think like going from. You know, kind of the founders to 20, 25 people, perhaps even fifty people. It's usually uh, often easier and less capital intense to do that in a smaller ecosystem. I think where it starts to get a little tougher, and it kind of switches around uh, later on, is like smaller ecosystems also don't have uh, easy access to senior talent. So as you scale the company, as you start to 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 need a VP of marketing or a VP of sales, or a VP of engineering that senior talent is much harder to come by in a smaller ecosystem. And, uh, and, and that's where the Valley, for example, has, has an amazing advantage. Like if, if you are a company in the Valley that has product market fit, uh, that is starting to scale, that has raised venture capital, that has great partners on, on their side, um, you would suddenly have the ability to hire uh, talent, senior talent that has seen and done it before, you're able to scale help you scale the company very very quickly and really build a, a large uh, standalone organization so so we always think about it in trade-offs the smaller ecosystems are, are often better uh, getting to product market fit and, and kind of getting from from the founders to 50 people um, the, the the valley is is unparalleled in in taking companies really in a uh,
0: and that seems really interesting because now in the Valley itself, remote work is now becoming popular. And so I wonder if there is a change on the mindset of the people who are those A-level players um, who look for those type of organizations now being open to finding jobs in those organizations that are finding product market fit outside of Silicon Valley and opening up to distributed work. Have you seen anything in that in terms of a shift in mindset on the people who are uh, have a lot of experience in these roles and are, are they open to dis- distributed work?
1: yeah I think you you see it more and more. I wouldn't call it like uh, yeah, a big wave yet um, mm-hmm. and probably if you're a very talented experienced <coughs> senior leader in the valley, you know it's it's so incredibly easy to get a job uh, around the corner right? and uh, you don't you don't need to kind of look look very far. but I think overall, as people think about potentially living living in different places and not necessarily the valley uh they might be interested in in enjoying startups that that are built around distributed teams and and lending their experience to those to those companies
0: hmm. that's very really interesting and it seems like over the long term medium term probably five to ten years that might be an interesting kind of way of helping companies maybe in in terms of like sourcing people who are looking to move out of silicon valley or just looking for a distributed uh, job so they don't have to leave their house in san francisco or whatever yeah um so how do you guys get deal flow for all these different companies you, why why in those four sectors you said seattle the bay uh new york and waterloo why in those four different places why is the deal think, flow coming from those places i think partly
1: historically um that you know we've been we've been active there we build up portfolio companies. A lot of the, the deal flow comes from um, founders um, in, in our network, um, so I think it's basically just reinforcing um, that, that feedback loop, and, and uh, um, so it's just much more consistent uh, in terms of deal flow. Um, having said that, you know, there's there's many other locations where we see um, deal flow is just not as consistent as as, as in those four locations. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's a little random, a little just, you know, historically, uh, uh, history that, that we got there.
0: Uh, huh. and that's super interesting. And what, do, what does it involve? You know, do, do you have any markets that you're looking to add that to? Like, do you have any places, metro areas that you're like, oh, wow, I really think that Chicago is going to start to have some interesting, uh, companies come out of it and how would you, if you did have that, how would you then set up a presence there?
1: Yeah, so so we always thought that uh, we're underrepresented in, in LA in terms of the amount of traction there is, the amount of interesting companies there is. Um, you know, we we just we've never for, for better worse, never really found uh, uh, t- tons of interesting deal flow for us in in that market. You know, I don't I don't think necessarily that um, kind of we would set up a presence in any of those markets. I think we're we're trying to spend actual time in, in in a bunch of these markets um mm-hmm. and we have to do a better job in and in, in doing that for la going forward um, but but it's, it's it's tough to really plan it um, i mean ultimately you know we we have uh a certain investment thesis what we like to invest in and there's not over not always an overlap between what we like to invest in and kind of the, the startups that come out of a particular particular geography so from that point of view you know the, the the way we always think about it, we're, we're you know we're, we're thesis driven, but uh, geography agnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't really think about like having ha- having to have a a presence in a certain geography. Uh, it, it just usually organically evolves over time as there's more startups that fit our thesis come out of a certain geography, and at some stages there's enough critical mass for us uh, in, in in that ecosystem.
0: So I'd love to d- dive deeper into the Waterloo Toronto, or is is it Waterloo Toronto? Um, yeah. Or is it, uh, okay, yeah. So that that ecosystem, because um, Canada, I know, has made some changes at the government level in order to make some more make more um, effective startups. Is that correct?
1: Yes. I mean, so perhaps. All right, let's let's talk a little about um, Toronto, Waterloo, and, and and Canada in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the opportunity is. Um, so Toronto, Waterloo is definitely one of the ecosystems we're most excited about, and it's for a bunch of reasons. Um, the, the the first one is it has two amazing universities: University of Toronto, which has a long background in machine learning and AI. Uh, Secondly, University of Waterloo which has consistently um, brought out some of the most entrepreneurial thinking, engineers um, and, and programmers. And uh, so there's, there's a tremendous amount of innovation and, and entrepreneurs coming out of um, these universities. Um, the, the, the second thing is Toronto, Greater Toronto right, is now the third largest metropolitan area um, in, in the US and Canada um just behind New York and LA. So there's just critical mass. It's larger than Chicago. Um, so there's some real critical mass of just the amount of people that live there, uh, and the, the amount of funding that is that that is that is available, etc. Um thirdly, the ecosystem has gotten really, really solid uh, from startups that have um Started to scale and and kind of spit out uh, spit out kind of new new startups to um, incumbents um, that have built big offices, development offices, and and sales and marketing offices in Toronto. You know, be, be it the Google's and Facebooks and Amazons, be it homegrown ones like Shopify that has close to a thousand people now in in, in Toronto. Uh, you have a very solid funding environment, both from um, domestic funds um, venture capital funds as well as uh, US funds that are that are happy to, to invest in Toronto and and, um, and and travel to Toronto so there's really something something special going on uh, in that combination of uh, amazing universities scale of the city evolving ecosystem and uh, you know on, on, on top of that, which, which is true for all of Canada. I think Canada has uh, has very forward-thinking immigration policies. Um, you know, they they make it much easier for both entrepreneurs as well as senior leaders um, to, to come to Canada, settle down here, get a permanent residency, uh, and it's it's a very welcoming country um, to um, to people that want to build um, their their life, their business in in this country, right? And so I think all of that together. Um, I think re- really helps um, create, create a, a flourishing environment for startups in Canada and especially in Toronto, Waluigi.
0: Mm. That is really interesting. And I, I, I would tend to agree because I know that America traditionally has been open, uh, but then our H-1B v, v, uh, visas are uh, closing down. And then with Trump, it's not doesn't seem to be uh, changing in a positive way. Uh, whereas Canada is just like, yeah, you know, if you have if you have an engineering degree, if you've gone to a good university, if you if you want to start something, come to Canada. Is that that's that's the that's the deal, right?
1: Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, um, right right now uh, for better or Canada is in a in a in a great spot, um, pitching to to people around the world uh, that this this is a country that that welcomes you as an entrepreneur as a uh, as a business leader, as somebody who wants to build a life uh, and, and uh, wants, wants to feel welcomed in a country.
0: Yeah, because and that's and that's the real thing. Because it's like people come to the United States because of this uh, potential for innovation. We have property rights. We have this kind of like IP kind of protection. And then Canada has all those things as well, and they have the immigration component. And I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, um, agree.
0: And then let's talk about Vancouver. Are you living in Vancouver because of, uh, you know, is it personal or is it because there's also that type of business acceleration going on in Vancouver? How closely tied is Vancouver uh, to Seattle in terms of economics? Is it would it be considered one metro area or is it pretty separate?
1: So few few, few uh, pieces in that question. So first of all, I think it's more more by by random coincidence that I ended up in Vancouver I started a company back in Germany uh, in '99. We sold it to a company based on Vancouver Island in 2001, and uh, I came over as part of the process. Met my wife here, and kind of rest is history. Uh, So that was way before um, I started investing. You know, um, I think Vancouver is a really interesting ecosystem. It's much smaller than than Toronto. Um, There's a lot of uh, a lot of the times that people kind of uh, Kind of pitched the, the, the Seattle-Vancouver corridor, uh, what they call Cascadia. I think reality is also that you know it's it's three and a half driving hours uh, and a border in between. So as, as much as I would love to see it like like as one corridor, there's still uh, you know a lot of friction in that that area. Um, and uh, you know there's there certainly closer links between Vancouver and Seattle than and between many other cities, but, but I wouldn't, wouldn't, it's not the same as Palo Alto, San Francisco, or Toronto, Waterloo, um, it's just much further, plus the border in between. So, um, you know, perhaps at some stage we really get to a Cascadia corridor, but, but, uh, it's still a little bit further out.
0: Hmm. Do you feel comfortable having a conversation about more of a global kind of capital picture in terms of like Europe, China, uh, South America and in these sections or those kind of places that you're not really focused on? Don't, yeah, really I are. mean,
1: um, we, we can certainly talk about all of those places and any any specific questions you have in mind?
0: Um, so let me think here. So I, I'd, I'd lo- I don't understand that much about European venture capital. If you do have insight into that, I'd love to know more about it. I'm always interested in China, the rise of technology in China and also the interrelationship between uh, capital in China. So, so you know, how much are American investors, uh, North American investors, investing in China, and how much are Chinese investors in investing in um, North American startups and the crossover between that? So that would be super interesting. Yeah, uh, and then sure. also, ju- I just have a lot of background in Latin America, um, and I just I, I'm I'm very keen on those places for my own for my own future. So, um, anything in that, I'd love to love to talk about.
1: Yeah. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Um, so first of all, uh, let's talk about Europe. Um, I think Europe has seen an incredible rise in entrepreneurship and venture capital over the years. Um, this was far less developed um, 10 years ago. And I think in the same way that we've seen uh, Local funds developing in North America uh, in the same way that we've seen smaller ecosystems break out in North America. We see now uh, really interesting um, ecosystems break out in in um, in Europe, and you know you have London, which is very strong in fintech, very strong in fashion. You you have the whole country of of Sweden and and mostly as a city Stockholm that has brought out. Uh, amazing companies like Spotify. Um, you have Paris and and Berlin and Barcelona as really strong ecosystems. So I think overall, it's it's um, it, it's really developing in a in a in a really interesting way. Um, you know, there's there's more and more North American companies, uh, funds that are investing in Europe. Um, some that have done it for for a few years now. Some that have started more recently as valuations in the valley have gotten. Uh, have crept up, um, so I think it's it's still far behind overall in in both um, startup culture and and financing power than than the valley and North America in general. But I think it's quickly catching up on, on all levels: entrepreneurs, um, mm-hmm. uh, capital, uh, ideas, ambitions. Uh, so pretty bullish on on Europe going forward. I think mm-hmm. China is is. For for sure, the only uh, realistic competitor to the Silicon Valley right now Um, Mm. is that combination of a gigantic domestic market, um, um, incredibly ambitious, aggressive, competitive entrepreneurs, and by now also a tremendous amount of capital that is available, um, both from on the one hand side domestic funds as well as a uh, Bunch of funds, uh, U.S. funds that have built up China operations. You know, Sequoia is probably the best example for that. Um, so I would say, if if there was any ecosystem, uh, any country that that is thriving for the same technology leadership than the U.S., it's China, and, and and they actually have a real chance uh, given all these factors.
0: That's really interesting. I didn't know that China was so, or that Sequoia had had. Uh created an organization in China that was so well run. And what about the opposite? What about from China, the capital flow from China into North American startups? Are you guys, do you guys see a lot of other Chinese investors in co-investing at all?
1: Yeah, I think I think it has started in the last little while. Uh, you have, uh, you know, Tencent, for example, uh, not as a fund, but kind of as a company has made a bunch of investments in in, in North America. You've seen a, a, a bunch of funds that, that came in I wouldn't say it's as, uh, systematic as, you know, kind of some of those, um, uh, some of those U S funds that have set up Chinese operations. Uh, and we'll see with the current trade wars, how long it's going to, you know, kind of that, that, um, that thing will work. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I think there was always, there always tremendous amount of interest. The reality is like right now, um, I think the, the 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 domestic Chinese market is so large. There's probably no need to necessarily uh, move into uh, into US and 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 spend tons of time here. Um, you know, kind of in in relative terms, the opportunities are probably bigger in in uh, China than there in the US.
0: Hmm. And what about Africa? Uh, cause it's so I know that China is investing a lot of money in their infrastructure in, in Africa almost as a, like a colonial play. Uh, but I, you know, I wonder, um, I've been reading this book called Factfulness about how, you know, the way that we traditionally look at other countries developing developed countries isn't the necessarily the best way. And that there's a, a logarithmic way of, um, of sectioning off we- wealth. And, you know, a lot of, as you were saying, in China, you know, they, they, they're a middle income probably you know going towards a, a higher income country and so there you know th- that's where a lot of that a lot of that value can come from from business sakes and it seems like a lot of countries in africa are also in that place latin america kind of coming from level two up to level three and then maybe even up to level four uh seems like that's where the most kind of uh, opportunity exists what, what do you think about that
1: yeah i, I think africa is super interesting uh in, in terms of um uh, you know future potential. Um, I think when we talk about Africa, we also have to kind of realize, like, you know, it's it's more individual countries that are probably interesting than all, all of Africa. Um, you know, Nigeria, for example, has close to two hundred million inhabitants. Uh, so that becomes, you know, as as this this is growing, uh, actually, a really interesting market. Uh, you know, that this is uh, two thirds of the US already, right? And so I think that that becomes certainly much, much more interesting. So I wouldn't say Africa in general, Um, there's just many, many countries with very different uh, sizes and growth perspectives, um, uh, etc. But but in in general, I would would say like, there's there's a bunch of uh, opportunity there.
0: Mm. So maybe like Nigeria, South Africa, Kenya, Tanzania, um, I know a lot of the North African countries are also kind of growing the MENA area um, middle East, North Africa, the, probably those, those are probably some of the, the more interesting opportunities. Yeah. Um, so let's take it to some of the companies that you guys are investing in. Uh, are you, are there any excited uh, companies that you're really excited about that you've you know recently made an investment or in, or a long time ago that are starting to do well? Can you talk about uh, your investments in that way?
1: Yeah. And, and given the, um, the, the, the theme that we've we've had around distributed teams. I want to pick out two companies uh, that we're excited about, but also they fit into the, the whole distributed team uh, theme that we had for this for this interview. Uh, so the first one is Abstract. Abstract is a design collaboration software. Um, you know, th- think about uh, what GitHub has done for code. Abstract is doing for design. So we bring everybody together. Having, having organizing version control of designs, et cetera, and, and having that work on top of the design tools that are out there. Uh, and App Store is a, you know, SF-based company, uh, but it's one of the examples that they have built a distributed organization from the beginning on and have scaled in an incredible way uh, in, in, in that distributed fashion. Uh, yes, they have a headquarters in SF, but at the same time, um, they have probably more than a third of their 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 people uh, based somewhere else. So uh, gr- great example of how um, uh, you you can build an amazing company with a headquarters, but but uh, you know a, a big piece of the team being distributed. Um, the uh, the other one I want to talk about is is uh, is Dropout Labs. It's a Halifax company. So Halifax is on the east coast of Canada very far away from any major tech ecosystem and and dropout labs has developed a technology that lets you run machine learning algorithms in an encrypted way so basically you can train machine learning algorithms without um having access to the data or seeing the the underlying data to train these these things on and you could imagine use cases where Uh, For privacy reasons, you can't really um, uh, share the data, or for competitive reasons, you can't really share the data. But uh, you're interested in training these machine learning uh, models and and having access to the data for that, um, and use the encryption technique that they developed um, to enable that. But that's a company, you know, that there's very few people in the world that um, have that specialized knowledge to develop that technology. It's it's really deep tech. Uh, And so they have built a little bit in Halifax in terms of their headquarters, but most of the team is actually distributed in France, in the U.S., uh, on both coasts in the U.S., and and they have really leveraged um, talent from around the world to build a really interesting technology company. Uh, in a very that origin, in a very small ecosystem that uh, you know that doesn't really have these these resources. So two examples of uh, of how you how you leverage distributed teams and in and, and both cases create some some super interesting companies and super interesting technology.
0: I would love to talk about that like as a, almost a case study because uh, so you've got how, how did they start? what what's the story on how they started this company in Halifax? So,
1: it, it was basically just um, you know, a founder that had an amazing idea uh, and started working on that and, and pulled together a small team. But as they kind of went for, you know, further down the, the, the rabbit hole of, of that technology, uh, it's a very small community of people that are interested in that, that know something about it. So, by just being out there and, and starting to develop, um, uh, you know, kind of papers and and publishing the technology and and talking about it you attract these people from around the world that are interested in that topic and and want to join the company right and so i think that's a great example of um how you use a distributed um um team approach to to build a very unique company
0: that's very interesting um uh yeah, I'd love I'd, I'd love to reach out. I, I'm finding him now. Gavin Gam, Gavin Uma Uma is the co-founder, yeah, right? right? Yeah,
1: correct.
0: Yeah, um, yeah. I'd love to reach out out to them. Do, do you know if he speaks in French too, or does he does he speak in French?
1: Uh, she, he speaks uh, English most of it. Uh, okay. I, I don't even know if he speaks French, but uh, yeah.
0: you can try. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, interesting. Um, so that's really cool. So we got about five ten minutes left. What is kind of the thing you've are been talking about the whole time, but, you know, like if you were to kind of sum it up, what would be the thing you're most excited about in terms of, uh, this development of technology around the world? Uh, what kind of, why are you doing what you're doing? What lights you up inside?
1: You know, I think, we invest at, at the very early stages when you have like a passionate founder that has a vision for, for a company, for an idea, for a product, right? And, and uh, wants to build it. And what, what really I get super excited about is, is finding these founders, believing in them, backing them, helping them through, through the ups and downs, which an early stage, stage startup mm-hmm. is usually about um, and hopefully at the other side of the, the, that process having contributed to building a large standalone company that uh, has developed tech that uh, technology that, that helps a lot of people either by building better businesses or by improving lives uh, or helping uh, get access to more resources, more knowledge, more information. so yeah that, that, that would really, uh, drives out like a uh, hopefully great outcome uh, in terms of the, the technology that's being built coupled with um, this super raw state of an early stage startup where not a lot of people believe in in that entrepreneur, not in, in the value of the product. And uh, so that's fun to, to help mm. make something happen out of almost nothing.
0: So let's talk about that for a bit. Uh, the How important is this relationship aspect so you you go in there before anybody else believes in them, and you believe in them you kind of like choose choose them before before you have those social signals from other people to choose them. Um, How big of that plays a role in developing long term relationships with founders like how long have you been investing
1: so as a we started the first one 2012 so that's seven years but i've been Mm -hmm. investing four or five years before that so it's it's a Mm -hmm. good uh, dozen years now that that Mm
0: -hmm. and how do you how does that relationship build you know you're finding that person before how 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 big is that role playing of like oh i'm like i'm going out to find these people before anybody else believes in them does that form a really solid relationship in terms of business
1: yes for sure i mean i think founders not even founders, nobody, like, nobody forgets when they get support from somebody uh, at, at a moment where they need needed the most because nobody trusted in their capabilities or kind of wasn't aware yet. or haven't really got any conviction, right? Uh, I think everybody in, in different circumstances ha, has has these um, people, hopefully in their lives, where they, they made a big difference because they helped them at a moment where they 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 need it kind of that support, that help, right? And and that's nothing else in in an entrepreneur venture capital context. Uh, listen, some sometimes uh, you get to in founders that that already have tons of backing backing. They have their second time founders that they already do amazingly well. But sometimes you have yeah, first time entrepreneurs that uh are based in a smaller ecosystem where there's not a lot of local funds um, that they're perhaps raising in the tough category and, and, uh, they have a really tough time, um, um, kind of pulling together a fundraising round. And, uh, if, if you then get conviction in their abilities and the opportunity, then, uh, there's nothing more motivating than, than, than doing that.
0: Let's talk about that conviction in their abilities. How do you know when you found, how do you find conviction in a find in a founder?
1: So I think there is there is three things that we always talk about. I mean, the first one is we, we really want to invest in founders that have focus 110% of the energy on solving this particular problem because they're passionate about solving that problem, right? Um, you know, startups are very, very hard. And if you don't care enough... Uh, Kind of with enough energy about the, the problem you're solving, it, it's very hard to, uh, to to build to build a company that is successful. Um, so we always feel like um, we, we want to invest in founders that um, it, it, it didn't matter who believed in, in the idea, it didn't matter they could raise money for it. They really wanted to solve this problem. Right? I think the second thing is. Um, now building startups is incredibly tough and you need tremendous amount of different talents for it. You need to be able to fundraise. You need to be able to uh, develop a good product. You need to be able to um, think about distribution, marketing and sales. You need to be able to hire people. So I, I think, you know, a founder, the ideal founder is is kind of a, like a, Smith, a Swiss army knife. Um, they, they can do many of these things that are in, in, a, in, a, in a very efficient and effective way. Um, and then last but not least, I think today more than ever before, founders need to be able to communicate um, a story, a compelling story, why somebody should use this product, why sh- somebody should um, join the company, why somebody should invest. Um, and in in a in a in an environment where there's just more and more noise, more and more products, more and more choice for consumers and enterprise alike, um, you need to have a compelling story. You need to be able to tell that story. And and so I think magic happens when you know the passion of a founder meets uh, an ability to to be this Swiss Army knife that can handle. 15 different tasks in, 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 in the same great way uh, meets a storytelling ability that you can actually communicate why you're doing all of that uh, to the outside world.
0: Mm, very cool. Um, and so just to wrap up, how, how can people find out more about you? How can they find out more about your firm um, and um, what you guys are looking for?
1: go to our website, version1.vc, um, or Google version1ventures. you are going to find our website. We, we blog on a weekly basis, so we, we put out our thoughts there. Alternatively, please, uh, you, know, you can look at Twitter, um, at um B-W-E-R-T-Z. And um, yeah, but uh, always happy to take cool pitches as well um, if they're thoughtfully presented and intriguing.
0: So Very cool. Well, I have a lot of founders listening to this show. So hopefully, you'll get some people who are interested in in, in talking with you.
1: Perfect. Okay, thanks for so, having me. Yeah, you thank in. you for coming. Uh, yeah, thanks it. for coming
0: on. Yep.
1: And I'm um, looking forward to listening to it.